0: today reading is in the, the letters of Paul to Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, sorry, Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 to 9. It reads, Fleet with Eudia, and I fleet with Centosh to, ag- to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, Loyal York Pelo Help these women who are contented at my side in the course of the gospel, along with Kellerman and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the, in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice! Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer petition, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends and under, all understanding, will guide your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, sing about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or hear or heard from me or seen in me, put it in your sorry put it into practice and the god of peace will be with you this is the word of god
1: Friends, I think we'll we'll stand for prayer. Let's, Let's stand. Our gracious God, you are so glorious that the heavens cannot contain you. And yet you have assured us that you dwell with those who have a humble and contrite heart. And so we pray that just as Jesus left the majestic glory of your heavenly throne to dwell amongst men, that you would come and dwell among us this morning by your Holy Spirit and through your word. We pray that your divine finger will help us as we try to read your word. That your finger will point with tremendous skill into our hearts and minds, applying your word to each one of our lives individually. And most of all, we pray that as your word both humbles us and then lifts us up with a great sense of gospel grace and joy, that we might enjoy communion with you as dearly loved children enjoying communion with their Father. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please sit. What should normal church life be like? I'm sure that all of you have got uh, different ideas about this. And most Christians will say, I think, that there have been times when we found that our experience of church has fallen rather short of what we were hoping for of course we know that when christ returns that we will see on that day with breathtaking clarity why being part of a bible teaching church was actually one of the best decisions that we ever made but until that day comes what should normal church life be like That, I think, is the the question that arises from our passage this morning, Philippians 4, 2-9. As we approach the end of the letter, uh, Paul has moved on, hasn't he, from those tremendous truths about Jesus that he was teaching us back in chapter 2. And now here, in light of those tremendous truths, there are some applications that he wants us to put into practice. We've already seen, haven't we, that the church at Philippi was in many ways a model church. Paul's very pleased with them. Last week he described them, didn't he, as his joy and his crown. But they are also a normal church. And that means that they were struggling then with all the normal challenges of life in a fallen world. And so this morning in our passage we're going to see that there was some disunity in the church. Then there were other people in the church who were battling with anxiety. And in the lives of some of the others, there was a kind of undercurrent of worldliness just beneath the surface. And those were all areas where they needed the help of the Apostle Paul in exactly the same way that you and I do this morning. So what should normal church life be like as we wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. In last week's passage, you remember we were on the running track, and uh, we heard the challenge to keep pressing on until Jesus returns, and that marvellous day when we will enter into the new life fully that's promised to every Christian in the Gospel. But while we're waiting for that day, What does normal church life look like? Because if we're honest, uh, quite often church life can be really rather bumpy. Well, in the passage, Paul gives us three marks of a healthy gospel church. And the first mark is this, that a gospel church is a place where disunity must be healed. It's a place where disunity must be healed. So look down with me, please, at verse 2. Paul writes, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Friends, gospel unity matters in God's church. Now, there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, For a start, the Lord Jesus prayed about it, didn't he? Do you remember that in John 17? The night before he died, Jesus prayed for unity among his disciples, all his disciples. And he prayed that his people would be one, just as the Father and the Son are one. And the Apostle Paul has the same concern. So a little bit earlier in this letter, Paul said that in the local church, we are to stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, chapter 1, verse 27. And among church leaders, unity is especially important. It's actually the church leaders who are, I think, in view in our passage. And you see, if the church leaders aren't united, it won't be very long before the entire church divides. Why is that? Well, it's very simply because different members in church identify with different leaders in church. And uh, unless the elders are wide awake, pretty soon you end up with one group saying, well, I follow Raymond, and another group saying, well, I follow privilege. And before you know it, people actually aren't acting on gospel principles at all. They're voting on personalities they're saying, he's my friend, I'm going to back his agenda. And before long, everyone's fighting. So that's one reason why unity is so very important. And healthy church unity, of course, also means we can keep the focus on Jesus. You know, He's the focus of everything that we want to be doing in the local church. But when there's disunity... There's more gossip than worship. And uh, you hear people muttering, saying things like this, I can't believe they've treated her like that. Or, I just don't like the music. Or, I don't agree with the sermon program. And uh, when that kind of thing starts happening, we lose what should be everybody's focus, which is, of course, the Lord Jesus contrast, in a united church, the focus will always be on Christ and his gospel. So gospel unity matters in God's church. It mattered in Philippi, it matters in Cape Town, but in Philippi, that unity was being threatened. Two church leaders, Euodia and Syntyche, have fallen out. Now we're not told what the issue is. And that's because, if I can put it this way, the issue is secondary. If you like, the issue is not the issue. What really matters is the disunity. So you and I need to just pause and think about this together for a moment. Uh, Inevitably, there are certain areas of church life where people are bound to have different opinions. And on some of those issues, that's actually okay. But there are some things on which there must be unity between everybody. Because if we can't agree on those things, we actually cease to be a church in the New Testament sense of the word. What are some of those issues? Well, top of the list, there are primary gospel issues. So elders and deacons and members and associate members all need to agree... On the essentials of the gospel. Uh, That includes agreeing that the Bible is the Word of God and believing what the Bible says about the person and work of Jesus. Uh, It means agreeing on the necessity to repent and believe the gospel and on the reality of heaven and hell. And in all those matters, there is no room, my friends, for disagreement. They are primary gospel issues. But then, underneath that, there are what we call doctrinal distinctives. And here there is actually a little bit more flexibility. Uh, St. Barnabas holds to the doctrines of grace, uh, the amazing truths that were rediscovered at the time of the Reformation. Um, The amazing truths concerning God's sovereignty, for example. So, we believe that God is the one who saves us. We don't save ourselves. And then, take another example, when it comes to baptism, we believe that baptism should follow a person's confession of faith. And there are a couple of other areas of doctrine where we hold a particular position that might be slightly different from the position taken in other churches. And if members hold slightly different positions on those distinctives, that's absolutely fine. All we ask, all we require, is that they respect our position on these matters and don't seek to cause disunity through them. And you can read about those distinctives in our Constitution. But then in addition to that... There are what we might call issues of conscience. So within the church family, there may be different opinions as to which is the best Bible translation to use. Or whether there's a place for prophecy or speaking in tongues in a church service. Or what kind of education is best for our children. Or the use of alcohol or tobacco. Or indeed, how to vote in the local elections. Now at St. Barnabas, there is no party line on those particular issues. And we can agree to differ in love. But I do think it helps us, friends, to keep those three levels clear in our minds. Primary gospel issues set out in our statement of faith, we've got to agree on those doctrinal distinctives where we take a particular position that might be different from other churches. And then there are those issues of conscience. But having said that, in Philippians chapter 4, it doesn't actually look as though Euodia and Syntyche are disagreeing on any of those things. For a start, at the end of verse 2, have a look at it. Paul says they are to agree with each other in the Lord. Now that's telling us, isn't it, that they're both believers? Paul wouldn't have written it like that if they weren't. And besides that, they're also described as being among those people whose names are in the book of life. And Paul also says, doesn't he, that they have contended at his side in the cause of the gospel. So they're obviously passionate about the gospel and working hard to make sure other people hear it. And friends, let's not forget that if there was a really big issue that needed to be addressed, Paul wasn't the kind of guy who would step back from doing that. In his letter to the churches at Galatia, for example, there was a massive issue, and Paul didn't even break stride before confronting it. Or, in the church at Corinth, there was a problem with sexual immorality in the church. Paul dived straight in, faced the issue head on. But in Philippi, Paul isn't doing that. So I think the best explanation is that the the fallout, the disagreement between these ladies was really more of a personality clash. Uh, Maybe one of them has rubbed the other one up the wrong way. Perhaps Euodia has recently taken over leading the music group and uh, Syntyche can't stand all of the new songs that they're singing. Or maybe Syntyche's young adults group is bursting at the seams And Euodia is feeling really rather threatened by her success. We don't know. But it doesn't matter. Because the issue is not the issue. Paul's concern is the disunity. And he says, listen to me very carefully, it has got to stop. Someone has said, I think very wisely, that local church unity is gained slowly, But lost quickly. So we've got to be very, very careful to preserve it. In Philippi, it doesn't matter who started it, Paul says they've both got to stop it. Because a gospel church is a place where disunity must be healed, it's completely out of place between gospel partners. Now, interestingly for you Greek scholars, in the original language, the word for togetherness in Greek is the word sun or sin, spelled S-Y-N. So, for example, the word synagogue is the place where Jews would meet together. It was their together place. And in verses 2 and 3, that little word sun is a prefix of five different words in the, in the text, including, isn't this interesting, including, of course, one of the woman's names, Syntyche. Now that, of course, adds even greater weight to what Paul is saying. So it's rather like telling a woman called Charity to be more loving, Or or telling a woman called Constance to please be a bit more stable. Telling a lady called Syntyche to stick together with her sister in Christ is actually a brilliant way of emphasizing Paul's point. In God's church, disunity must be healed. Now someone will say, but hang on a moment, Simon, she started it. Well, says Paul, you stop it. Someone else may say, well, you know, I just can't get on with him. Um, He just winds me up. I actually can't stand it. Do you know what they said? Do you know what he did? Paul says, never mind. It's got to stop. And if necessary, a third party has got to get involved. So in verse 3, we're told about this mysterious, loyal yoke fellow. We can't say for sure who it is. Um, I've got my own uh, guess. It is only a guess that it might be the gospel writer Luke. And that's because he was there when the church was planted and he stayed in Philippi for eight years and he was surely a safe pair of hands. It might have been him. But that's only a guess. Whoever it is, Paul wants him to mediate between these two ladies because the dispute has got to stop. Now, I suppose I also need to say that doesn't mean that you have to be absolutely best buddies with everybody in church. And we've all got different personalities, we've all come from different backgrounds, but it does mean All of us have got to lay down our arms. There's got to be no fighting in the church that belongs to God. The word that's translated agree with each other in the text means literally to be of one mind. Now that's picking up the language of chapter 2 verse 5 where, you remember, Paul tells us we are to have the mind of Christ. And it means, I think, that if you fall out with somebody in the local church, although you might not feel very much like healing the breach, it's something that starts in the mind. So as I agree in my mind, and you agree in your mind, to put arguing to death, so down the line, thinking differently leads to living differently. Because a gospel church is a place where disunity must be healed. That's the first point. Second mark of a gospel church. A gospel church is a place where anxiety, may be overcome. And here we're in verses 4 through 7. Now, over the last 18 months, um, all of our lives have been completely turned upside down by the virus, haven't they? But health professionals are starting to realise that for all of the physical harm that the virus has done, the psychological and emotional damage is actually even greater. Anxiety has shattered the mental health, the relationships and the hopes of literally millions of people. So it's no exaggeration to say that in 2021, anxiety has actually become a pandemic in its own right. Do you agree with that? Isolation from friends financial pressure, the endless barrage of depressing news, the loss of control over our lives, all these things have compounded and exacerbated our stress levels. And not knowing where else to turn, many people have sought comfort in excessive amounts of screen time or excessive consumption of food or alcohol. But you see, the problem is, like a stone in your shoe, when you finish with those things, the anxiety is still there, isn't it? And yet against that, Paul says that in a gospel church, anxiety, all anxiety, may be healed. So look down with me at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is saying here that there are three priorities or the anxious mind. Rejoice in the Lord, be gentle to others, and prayer. Let's look at those together. I mean, where does rejoicing in the Lord fit in? Well, the ultimate antidote to anxiety is not to focus on your personal circumstances, which are constantly changing and will always be a potential source of stress. No, rather focus on Christ. Because Christ is always the same. He never changes. So rejoice in the Lord. And somebody's thinking, Paul, you cannot possibly mean that. You don't know what I'm living with or what I'm going through at the moment. You don't know my circumstances, so please don't tell me to rejoice. To which Paul replies, I will say it again. Rejoice, I really do mean it. So, imagine a dartboard with me. Does everybody know what a dartboard looks like? Dartboard, circular thing. In the middle of the dartboard is you. You're you're in the bullseye, so to speak. Then in the next circle out, there is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the final circle outside that is whatever circumstances are that we're living with at the moment. So you've got the picture? You in the middle, Jesus, the circumstances. The circumstances might be health worries, relationship difficulties, worries about money, worries about your job. Those are real concerns. I don't want to belittle them, even for a moment. They're painful, they're difficult. But you see, for the Christian, for the person who is truly in Christ, verse 7, it's as if there is this enormous buffer surrounding us. So if those circumstances are actually going to hit us and harm us, they've got to get through Jesus first. That's the picture. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not dismissing the reality of the pain and the anxiety. Uh, And I'm not saying that people who do battle with those things can't be helped by the common grace that's available through counseling or through medicine. But, now listen to me carefully here. What Paul is saying is that each one of us is responsible and accountable for our emotional lives. You know, we're not a slave to our emotions and we're not victims of our anxieties. And we're not to go around saying, well, look, everything's going wrong for me and I'm totally stressed out about it. Friends, we've got to repent of that mindset because it's a vote of no confidence in Jesus. Now, of course, I know perfectly well there are times when The clouds, whatever they are, just don't seem to shift. But even then, Paul says, remember this is the same Paul who is in prison, the same Paul who's on death row and yet rejoices, the same Paul who's been stabbed in the back by his rivals, that same Paul says, my dear friend, rejoice in the Lord. You really can do that because there is all the hope you're ever going to need, substantial hope, in the gospel. Anxiety can be overcome. So rejoice in the Lord. Secondly, be gentle to others. Verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. The point is that the Lord Jesus is really Really close to you. Uh, those stresses, those circumstances have got to get through him before they're ever going to hit you. And gospel joy is not, not a mindless, boisterous thing, and it's certainly not an intimidating thing. Gospel joy is actually a very gentle thing, and it leads to patience and understanding of others and their particular needs and their vulnerabilities. And Gospel Joy realizes that if the Lord has been gentle to me, and if he's given me the time to change, and he's not said, look, I expect to see significant change in you by tomorrow morning, or we're done. He's not done that. And if he's not done that, but he's been gentle with me, well, Gospel Joy says, I'm going to do the same for other people. I'm going to be gentle and reasonable and patient and kind. Now, of course, yes, there's always a place for the challenging encouragement when we we might speak a word to somebody who's perhaps lost focus. But, friends, there's also a time for silence and for just being with someone and putting an arm across their shoulder time for love and for patience and care rejoice in the Lord be gentle with others and don't be anxious but pray verse 6 do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your request to God And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice there's another exchange here. We've already had one of those in the letter, haven't we? Do you remember in chapter 3, we were told, weren't we, that Paul had exchanged his former past for knowing Christ. Do you remember that? And there's another exchange going on here. He's saying trade in your anxiety about anything in exchange for prayerfulness in everything. And just as a father would hate to be left out of the loop if his son or daughter were in pain or going through trouble of some kind, so too our loving Heavenly Father loves to hear our prayers. He loves to hear our petitions and our our thanksgivings and our cries for help because we are his dearly loved children. Uh, When our girls were babies, we used a baby monitor. I don't know whether Pauline has got one of those. Have you got one of those? You haven't. Well, for those of you who don't know about them, uh, what you do is you place a monitor with a microphone by the baby's cot And then you have the receiver with you wherever you are, downstairs watching the rugby or whatever it is. And it means that when they're crying or they suddenly become distressed, you can leap up and go and help them. But every parent knows that after several consecutive broken nights, when the crying starts, there is a tremendous temptation to turn the volume down or even turn the machine off. But you see, our Father in heaven never does that. His heavenly listening monitor is always turned on. He's always listening. He's listening to every cry from your heart and from mine. He's always there. And he knows precisely how we feel. And the invitation, you see, is wide open to everybody. Do you see that in verse 6b? Present your requests to God. And what's the promise? Well, notice it's not that he's going to do everything that we want him to do. It's not that. And just as any good father wouldn't automatically give everything his child wants just because they ask for it. No, the heavenly father's got a much greater goal in mind for you and me. Because he wants to give us his peace. So verse 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, the, the awesome, mind-transcending peace of God, the peace that can only be found, be found by those who are secure in the everlasting arms of Jesus, that peace will guard our hearts It's actually the same word uh, that's used for the troop of soldiers guarding Paul's prison cell, making sure that no unwanted visitors can get in. It's a very reassuring word, that word guard. Because it means that if any circumstances are going to unsettle our hearts, if we've already prayed, well, those circumstances have got to break through the peace of God first. Because that peace is guarding our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. So friends, in gospel churches, the the promise is not, it's not that anxiety is simply going to disappear like the morning mist. It's not that. But if we take our eyes off our circumstances and focus instead on the Lord Jesus... If we hear the Apostle Paul's call to rejoice in the Lord and be gentle to other people and pray, I'm absolutely convinced that our anxiety can be overcome. So in a gospel church, disunity must be healed, anxiety may be overcome, and lastly, in a gospel church, Godly thinking leads to godly living, godly action. Verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, you see, when churches face... Disunity or anxiety, and over the last 10 years we've had plenty of both, it's very tempting, isn't it, to react badly? Almost all pastoral problems in church life come back to sin and sinful reactions. But in gospel churches, there should be godly thinking and godly action. First, godly thinking. Paul gives us this marvelous list of things that we are to think about. Now, what do you do with those lists that appear all over the New Testament? There are a number of them, aren't there? Um, There's the fruit of the Spirit, isn't there, Galatians 5. There's the the vices of the flesh, 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, There's the command to put off this way of life and put on that way of life in Colossians 3 and so on very easy for us to read those lists in the New Testament and for our eyes to simply glaze over. Perhaps it's because we read them too quickly. Perhaps we don't pause to think about each in- ingredient carefully. Or maybe, maybe we fall into the trap of saying, well, do you know what? I'm really quite good at three out of six. So that's a gentleman's pass. That's Okay. Or we say, look, I've only got two out of those six vices, so I don't really need to worry about that list. Now, I think the point is that we're meant to be growing in all of these areas, not just the ones that are convenient for us. So let's look a little bit more carefully at how Paul says that we are to react to issues of disunity with other Christians and anxiety In ourselves, here's the remedy. I mean, do we, for example, react by thinking about whatever is true? Or are we more ready to actually listen to the lies of Satan that he whispers in our ears, or perhaps through the media? Do we think about whatever is noble? Or actually, do we flirt with a dishonourable Response, You know, gossiping, sniping, backbiting, getting angry. Do we pause to consider what is actually right in the situation we might be dealing with? Or do we tend to side with our friends rather than the person who's taking the heat, even though we know deep down inside they're actually in the right? Do we process these challenges in ways that are pure? Or does impurity creep into our minds more than we care to admit? Paul says we're to think about whatever is lovely. What's your thought life like? Are our thoughts beautiful, delightful, attractive, Or, if we're honest, are our thoughts actually rather more shaped by the world? Are our thoughts admirable? Very interesting word. In other words, would younger Christians want to imitate us in the way that we react to disunity and anxiety and so on? Would they admire our response from a distance? Or, in all honesty, would they actually be really rather put off? anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Friends, the point is we can't let the world set the agenda. We can't let the world shape either the content or the manner of our thinking in the way that we deal with sin. So you and I need to ask ourselves as we read this passage, how much time every week are we spending soaking in the world's influence on our thought life. So you've got God's word over here and over here you've got 24-7 media, television, internet, Facebook, and all of that. Now the question is, which of those two is actually the benchmark of truth in our thinking? Is it God's word Or is it the world? Now don't misunderstand, Paul's not advocating that we retreat from the world. We need to be aware of what's going on in the world around us in order to speak effectively into it. But at the same time, friends, we do need to make sure that our filters are in place and are in excellent working order so that we can distinguish between truth and lies and between good and evil. Because... Godly thinking leads to godly action. Verse 9. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. A lot of the teaching in this section has been to do with the mind and how we think about our circumstances But you see, our attitudes will always come out in our behavior. Theology in the mind must be worked out in practice. Which is why Paul says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Understanding is important, it's vital. But can I say that it's not enough? Hearing the word is good, but it's only half the job. We need to do the word as well. I think we probably, most of us, come from circles where we're really rather good at getting God's word into our minds. Uh, perhaps through taking notes during the sermon. That's an excellent thing to be doing. Or maybe listening to the sermon again on the podcast or uh, online in some way. But we do need to be putting it into practice. Because when that's happens, The church becomes a place where God's peace is at home. Now, friend, I I don't know what the particular challenge is that is arising for you from this text this morning, but there will be one. There will be one. Might be a disunity thing. Uh, Perhaps this morning you'll be saying to yourself, well, I can see now that I do actually need to deal with that because disunity must be healed in God's church. Or maybe you've got an issue this morning with anxiety. Be very understandable if you have. And if that is the case, I hope you realize that in God's church, anxiety can be overcome because of the wonderful hope that we have in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So if anything's going to attack you, it's got to get through him First. And he will keep you, and he will surround you with his peace. And godly thinking, thinking about our thought life, we've been doing a lot of thinking about our thinking this morning. If you've been tracking with the Apostle Paul for the last few minutes, you have been doing godly thinking. And if that is the case, may your godly thinking lead to godly action. So that our lives don't just look different, but they really are different. Different because God's word is doing its work in us. Well, let's be quiet for a moment and then I'll pray. Father, you've taught us so much in this letter about the glories of the gospel, and this morning we thank you for these very practical marks of a gospel church that show us how we can follow Paul's example of pressing on to the goal of our salvation. May St. Barnabas be a church where disunity is always healed, where anxiety is overcome, and where godly thinking leads to godly action. And all these things we ask for Christ our Saviour's sake.